and welcome to Focus AF. My name is Carolina and I'm your host. Each episode will tell you real stories about mental health, advocacy and the health and social care sector. This podcast is brought to you by Advocacy Focus, the charity helping you live the life you want to live. Hello, welcome to today's episode. I am joined by Megan and Leanne. And we're going to be talking about all things court of protection. So, Megan, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Megan Taylor, and I'm a solicitor in the court of protection and community care department at Stevenson Solicitors. I've worked in this area of law for nearly over five years now and have represented P and family members in a variety of complex court of protection and community care cases. I'm really excited to be here with you both today. So, thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Megan. Uh, and Leanne, would you like to introduce yourself? Morning, I'm Leanne Barber. I work at Advocacy Focus. I've worked here now for 12 years and I'm really excited to talk about all things court of protection. Excellent. Thank you very much, both. So let's crack on then. So Megan, what is the court of protection? I think this is a question that a lot of people have, to be honest. Um, it's when you even mention the court of protection, um, the response I tend to get is the court of what? Oh, is that family law? Um, no, it's not. <laughs> if we start at the very basics, um, so sometimes a person may not be able to make a decision affecting their life at the time that it needs to be made. So a person may, for example, let's say have a diagnosis of dementia, have a learning disability, a brain injury or other medical condition and their condition might affect their ability to understand their situation or make a decision. So this is where the Court of Protection then becomes involved. So the Court of Protection is a specialist court and it's responsible for safeguarding the rights of those who've been assessed to lack capacity to make a particular decision for themselves. So the court deals with decisions or actions taken under the Mental Capacity Act and makes decisions on financial or welfare matters for people who can't make decisions at the time that they need to be made. So they lack mental capacity. It is important to remember, though, that the existence of an illness or a condition doesn't itself mean that a person may lack capacity and an assessment by a professional is required to determine this. Excellent. Thank you very much. So you talk about financial and welfare matters. So what types of decisions will the court of protection deal with? Yeah, so when someone is assessed to lack mental capacity, a decision needs to be made. Um, it must be made for them based on what's in their best interest. So this can be quite difficult sometimes and disagreement with local authorities or doctors or other professionals or between family members is quite common. So the Court of Protection can consider a wide range of issues really and make decisions on behalf of people lacking mental capacity. So if I just give you some brief examples for a bit of context, so the court can make decisions on where a person should live. So, for example, there might be a disagreement about whether a person should move into residential care or a nursing home. 
what care a person should receive in that setting, who a person should see and have contact with. So, for example, there may be a disagreement about a person having contact with um, a family member or another individual because, let's say, concerns have been raised about this individual and the way they treat the person or the influence they have over the person and people don't think that having contact with this individual would be in the person's best interest. And a slightly different aspect, what kind of medication or medical treatments a person should receive. So, for example, whether they should receive life-sustaining surgery or treatments or, I mean, we don't tend to see this as much now, but whether they should receive the COVID vaccine, um, whether a person is able to consent to and engage in sexual relations. So, for example, a vulnerable adult may have a partner and they may want to have sex with them, but professionals and family members might disagree on whether this is in the person's best interests. The court can also consider issues such as whether a person's care and support amounts to a deprivation of liberty and whether this needs to be authorised by the court. And the court can also consider um, deprivation of liberty challenges and appeals. So including deciding whether someone living in a care home can return to their own home, um, they should stay in a care home or move to another care home or less restrictive placements. The list could go on. <laughs> as to what types of decisions the court can make but it's I mean they can make decisions such as um does the person have capacity to manage their own finances so a huge huge uh, amount of information there and if you've never heard about the court of protection that was maybe a bit overwhelming but I am sure that Leanne is going to be able to put your mind at ease because as a seasoned advocate Leanne you've had lots of experience uh, supporting people that are going to the court of protection so tell us a little bit about why do advocates go to the court of protection? Yeah, of course. That was really interesting. There might be a bit of crossover, Megan, as well with what I'm going to say. But um, essentially, yeah, people who um, lack capacity, like Megan said, to be able to make certain decisions at certain times, those people will have the protection of having an advocate involved in their life to find out their wishes and feelings about certain decisions that are being made and sort of acting as a safeguard for people to make sure that whatever decision is happening or being proposed is in line with um, legislation, so in, in line with legal legislation. We tend to find as advocates there's two sort of avenues where we instruct solicitors. So I might go to Megan, for example, um, for some advice on two different areas, um, and I'll explain what they are. So you have what's called a Section 21A challenge. That's just the terminology of the, of the challenge itself. And that is for people who are deprived of their liberty. So like you mentioned, Megan, people who say, for example, have moved from their own home because they've had an illness or they've had a diagnosis that means the home setting is no longer an option and a safe place for them to be. So they would move to perhaps, um, a, you know, a nursing home, a residential home where they receive 24-hour care and essentially they will be deprived of their liberty. So it's a legal framework that the person is to reside there under certain restrictions. Um, so restrictions are things like locked doors, um, not being able to go out without staff. So there's, there's a whole range of different restrictions that would apply in those kind of settings where somebody is deprived of liberty and um, 
if they were challenging any part of that, so that could be challenging their living arrangements as a whole, wanting to return home, or they were challenging, they wanted to be able to go to the shop on their own. Us as advocates would then instruct solicitors to challenge those um, points on behalf of a person. So that's one avenue, your Section 21A. Your second um, avenue is what's called the Section 16. Again, that's just the terminology, also referred to as welfare applications. Um, so they are applications for people in any setting. So they, they cover community settings, somebody living in their own home, not necessarily in a nursing or a, a care home or a hospital. Some examples to give, I suppose, just to put it into context is um, you might be working with somebody who is having some what we call serious medical treatment decisions being proposed. So uh, somebody may lack capacity to decide whether or not they should undergo dental treatment or whether they should have chemotherapy or in very serious cases, amputations and things like that. Um, so again, we would be involved representing the person, what's their wishes, what's their views and ch ultimately challenging on behalf of that person if, if what's being proposed is not what they want. There could be decisions made around moving accommodation, so moving from one place to another, so from home to a nursing home, home to a residential home, or from a residential setting to another setting and, and finding out whether they're in agreement with that or if they want to challenge parts of that as well. Another area that we often come across is where there is a dispute about whether a person has capacity. I think you touched on that earlier, Megan, where you could have somebody, for instance, who has had an accident and has um, a brain injury, but the prognosis could be that they would regain capacity over time. So you could have challenges around um, person, a person regaining capacity or disputing that they lack capacity. That's where we would instruct solicitors. Again, you talked earlier about best interest decisions. So um, there could be a dispute about what is in that person's best interest with family members, with local authorities, with social workers. So again, there would be, be cases that we would seek advice on. Some other points that you talked about were whether or not somebody has capacity to engage in sexual relations. So wanting to have intimate relationships with another person. And you also talked about, um, I think you talked about internet um, and device restrictions. What we mean by that is where a person is unable to, say, access a phone, is unable to go on the internet, is unable to have contact with certain people. Another common issue that we may come across is what we call covert medication. So we touched on that as well, where somebody is essentially given medication discreetly. So given medication without their knowledge, that could be in food or drinks. Um, again, that's a very serious decision um, and not a decision to be taken lightly and, and making sure that legislation is followed and correct processes and protocols are in place. So, Leanne, um, as you're going through the different uh, examples that we might support someone in the court of protection, so how are we actually supporting that individual? What do we do? Um, how You talked about uh, gathering views, wishes and feelings. How do we do that? And what is our role to then present those views in court? So when we, when we go out and see a person, obviously we are aware of what decision is being proposed. Um, so it's a case of us as an advocate going out to that person, introducing ourselves, explaining our role, explaining that we're independent. And our primary concern is what that person wants within that decision that is being made. So 
it's gathering views, it's gathering wishes, feelings, it's making sure that people haven't made advanced decisions or advanced statements around what their life would look like if they were ever in a position where they couldn't uh, make their own decision. And if there is any objection to whatever is being proposed, our job is to inform the person that they have a right to challenge that and have a right to have a discussion with the, the people that are making those decisions um, to make sure it's, it's in line with the law and make sure the person is happy with them. If there is any challenge to that and if there's any disagreement, that is where we as advocates, as the safeguard for the person, will seek advice from a solicitor which they are entitled to have to talk through the case and make sure that what's being proposed is the right thing. And if it isn't, the court would be an avenue that we would explore to have those decisions made. Thank you. That's really helpful because I think for, for our listeners, if you've never heard about the Court of Protection, it sounds like a big monster, doesn't it? Um, so I think it's really helpful that we've broken it down into the different types of decisions um, that, that the, the COP might deal with. And obviously for people to know as well that they would have that independent representation in the form of an advocate. So we talked about lacking mental capacity. So sometimes that can pose some challenges in terms of how we gather views, wishes and feelings. Leanne, would you like to talk briefly about how an advocate might approach those conversations if someone is perhaps got communication difficulties or memory difficulties or anything like that? If you're not able to sort of have a, a discussion with a person sort of like we are, um, you've got to be creative. You've got to try and gain views from from people as, as absolutely as far as you can. We have communication toolkits that we can use with people who may struggle to, to verbalise how they feel. Um, so you can use picture aids. In the past, I've done activities with people. Um, so got out pens and papers or, as we've been talking and we've been drawing um, things down so that we're able to gain views. Observation is another um, good method that you can use if you're not able to verbally get things from a person. There, there are other ways. It's thinking outside the box sometimes of how you're able to gain that. Consulting other people, you know, consulting people's family and friends, trying to find out and build a picture of that person. How would that person uh, wanted these decisions to, to be made if ever they were in a position where they couldn't make them? And I think like I, I touched on earlier as well, looking at whether there has been any past wishes and views, advanced statements made to, to look at what that person would want. But it is, it can be difficult. You know, you may have somebody who, who's had an accident and got a brain injury that has no form of communication whatsoever at that time. And that's about using collaboration, working with other people that know that person, family, friends, professionals even, to try and gain a bit of a picture of what that person would want. Excellent. Thank you for that. So, uh, Megan, going back to you then, so when should advocates seek legal advice from a firm like yourselves? I'd say probably the most common situation an advocate would um, be obtaining legal advice is in challenging the deprivation for liberty authorisations. So like you mentioned, Leanne, we refer to this as Section 21A challenge. And you might make a challenge with or on behalf of someone if they don't agree with their capacity assessments um, through objecting to the deprivation of liberty authorisation, um, wishing to leave the placement and return home, or wishing to leave and return to a different or less restrictive placement, or they're objecting to the restrictions imposed um, by the authorisation. Just in terms of funding the person's legal representation, as this is a question um, we often get asked, 
where the person is challenging the lawfulness of the deprivation of their liberty and a standard or urgent authorization is in place, non-means-tested legal aid is available. Um, it is subject to a merits test, but the, the non-means element basically means that a person's financial circumstances won't be taken into account. So it doesn't matter if the person has £2 million in the bank um, and 20 properties um, in a dream world. <laughs> Uh, those won't be taken into account. Um, so they will have access to legal aid subject to the merits test. And we at Stevenson's have a legal aid contract. So that's something that we can provide. Um, just in terms of the next steps, once we receive a referral um, from our perspective, um, we will take steps to get funding in place um, as quickly as possible. Um, and then um, what we do next is arrange a joint visit um, with the advocates or RPR. Um, we'll review the restrictions and advise the advocates whether a courts, uh, whether an application to the court of protection is required. So you talked about the, the, the legal aid and I think that's a really important point because I think that's one of the things that people do worry about is, you know, am I just stuck? in this situation or is my my family member my loved one stuck in this situation because we can't afford uh, legal advice so I'm really really glad that that you touched on that so one of the things that I see our advocates asking is when should I make that call to a legal professional uh, when should I initiate that challenge would you be able to briefly talk us through that give potentially any advocates that might be listening some guidance of when do I pick the, the phone and call a solicitor yeah, so we say that the person's um, objections and wishes um, should initially be clear and consistent. Um, so by consistent, we usually mean that they've been expressing this objection for a period of time. So it isn't just a one-off comment that they've made. It does require some further exploration to ascertain that they are actually objecting. It wasn't just a maybe throwaway comment because it, they'd had a bad day when the advocate went to visit. Um, but that is something that we can also explore um, with the person and the advocates once we have funding in place. So when we go to do that initial visit, um, we can then see ourselves that the wishes are consistent and they're clear. And then we can provide advice on whether the court of protection application route is the most appropriate at that stage. Thank you, Megan. And, and Leanne, one for you. The prospect of potentially initiating a challenge and going to the court of protection I imagine can be quite daunting to an advocate, especially if they've never done it before. Are there any sort of tips or advice that you'd like to give to any fellow advocates listening to encourage them to pursue um, this option when appropriate? Yeah, it can be really daunting if you've never been to um, court before, any court, it can be a daunting process. I think as long as you as an advocate, um, you know, are aware of your role the boundaries of your role, um, but also considering the legislation that you're working under, you know, providing you're, you're working under a legal framework that has an option to be challenged, then have confidence in yourself and just know that you're doing the right thing. Um, I always say once you've done one court challenge and you've done it once, it, it does get easier, but your first one can be very, very daunting. Um, seek advice from peers if need be, just to get a bit of support around what it's like. Even so much as walking into the court building can be a really daunting thing for some people. We've actually done um, a court protection step-by-step -step guide, which is really good 
um, for advocates that have never been that go through all the court etiquette and what to expect so that it's, it's a bit of a less daunting process than you would expect. But yeah, it's just experience, but just know that what you're doing is right. Um, you're supporting that person. That's what your, your role is to do. And just be confident. Wise words, just be confident. So as we close uh, today's episode, I'd like to go to you both. And Megan, I'll go to you first with maybe any key information or key learnings that you want our listeners to leave with today. Yep. So um, just a bit about us here at Stevenson's, really. So our quarter protection team has a wealth of experience in dealing with all aspects of quarter protection proceedings and community care law. And we have particular expertise in complex mental capacity issues, best interests and deprivation of liberty issues, um, including Section 21A appeals. We're more than happy to accept referrals or queries to our personal email addresses, um, but you can also contact our general team email address, which is copinquiries at stevensons.co.uk. And thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I just had to say that as well. Thank you. No, thank you so much for your time, Megan. And uh, for our listeners, now you know how to contact Stevenson Solicitors if you need any advice. And finally, Leanne, I'll let you have the final words. Any uh, key learnings that you want our listeners to leave from an advocate's perspective? I just think as long as people know that advocates are here to help and support people, we are there as a safeguard for people. Um, us, like Megan, more than happy for any queries to come through. We've got a brilliant team. We've got a wonderful website that's got loads of information on there. So, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you very much, everyone. You want to find out more about the work that we do? Visit our website at advocacyfocus.org.uk. Thank you for listening and see you next time.